Well, good morning, church. It is my privilege to preach the Word of God to you. And I'm going to ask you to begin by opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And as you're turning to the book of Romans, I want to ask this question. I want to ask, where can God be found? If you wanted to find him, where could he be found? Where is he? If you needed him, where would you look? And I think what we're going to see today as we look in the scriptures, that the answer is both he is everywhere, but it's actually sweeter and better than simply saying that God is everywhere. Last week, we began to look at the biblical doctrine of assurance, this sweet and amazing and lovely truth that a believer can have confidence, assurance that not only did Jesus die for sinners to redeem them, to wash them with his blood, to rescue them from their sins, to reconcile them to God, to ransom them from death, to make them not an enemy of God, but now a child of God. But they can have assurance that this belongs to them. Not just that God saves sinners, but that God saves this sinner. And we saw that even though this sense of assurance is actually, it's actually part of the gift that Jesus paid for, for all believers, even though not all believers will have this sense of assurance, it does belong to them. We also saw that the Lord Jesus cares about this and that he intends to give us this assurance to his dearly loved people. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the fact that there is false assurance, and the scripture warns very loudly about this, that there are people who have confidence, that it is confidence, that it is well with their souls, but they have no reason for this confidence. And it is, in fact, that the wrath of God remains on them. We also noticed that there are true believers who are backsliding and who should have no assurance because they are rejecting all of the Spirit's assuring work in their lives. And in all of these cases, we see the heart of the Lord is to give assurance to those trembling sheep for whom he died. And he desires that they enjoy confidence that it is well with their souls, even now. He wants them to enjoy the blood-bought peace, which is theirs by faith in the gospel. He intends to expose false assurance so that it can be replaced with the sweet, rock-solid, infallible assurance of his own finished work on the cross for them. We saw that this is the promised work of the Holy Spirit of God. But how does the Spirit work this? Or more precisely, where does the Spirit work this? Where can assurance of grace be found, where does the Spirit work this? Brings us to our first point. Our first point is this, that the Lord is pleased to use earthly sin, earthly things. He's pleased to use earthly things. That's our first point. In one sense, God can be found everywhere. God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. He is in all places, all at the same time. That's part of what it means for him to be God. He is everywhere. Now, his effects can be seen in creation in the things that he has made. We see this in Romans 1. All humanity knows and can see in full display that the universe has been made by God. A God who is eternal and infinite and just. And that this God who made the world is also the lawgiver. And they know that they have broken his law and stand guilty before him. All are without excuse, says Paul in Romans 1. And the sin of man drives us to suppress the truth of God. Because we hate him. And we want to worship creation rather than him. So, in that way, the truth of God is to be found in every corner of the universe. It's actually, it's inescapable. But what about knowing God's covenant? saving presence. What about finding him as savior and redeemer? 
and not just judge. That's not something that's written into creation. That's not something you could logically come to a conclusion over, that this God, if we sinned against him, he must, he would be required to, logically we can figure this out, he would be required to take on human flesh and live in the place of humans and then also bear the just punishment for those humans whom he would save. That's not written in creation. This is something that had to be revealed. It had to be revealed by God in his word. Let's see this in Romans chapter 10. I asked you to turn there. Romans chapter 10. We're going to begin at verse 5. And we're, right now we're going to read to verse 17. Hopefully you can see this. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they hear, to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so here we see that God is not found by humans going around looking for him, not in that saving sense. In fact, no human is actually truly looking for him anyway. They're busy creating false gods that they actually would love. And they're looking for those things. They're actively suppressing the truth about the real God and replacing it with things that they can actually love and put their heart's affections toward. But it is God's word which goes out to call people. Everyone who is saved is saved by faith in the gospel of Jesus. The death of Jesus for sinners, his burial and then his resurrection from the dead. Faith in that gospel is how a person receives salvation. It's not based on who you are or what you've done. It's not based on how well you are, how good you can look at creation and discern, oh, there is a God and oh, I've sinned against him and oh, he must have sent his son because I can show that he would be required to do that. That's not at all how it is. Faith is how a person receives salvation. It is a free gift received by faith and faith comes by hearing the word of God, specifically hearing the gospel promises. That's how the Spirit of God works faith. That is how he creates faith. We saw last week that it is the Spirit of God who works faith. But this is how he has chosen to do it. But I also want you to notice that it's not just mystical and random. He creates faith by having the Word of God, the Word of the Gospel, preached with the voice, with the lungs of a human who is sent by, who is commissioned by other Christians, by churches or a church. God can do anything he wants. But that's not enough for us to know. That is good for us to know. We don't need to know simply what God could do or what God is entitled to do. We need to know what God has promised to do. Yes, God is spirit and everywhere present, but it has pleased the Lord to come down to us in ways that he can be known by us, in ways that meet our weak, human, created, physical, earthy frame, in ways that are reliable, 
and even ways that are regular and, dare I even say, boring and predictable, but beautifully boring and beautifully predictable. And that brings us to our second point, which is this. The Lord has promised to use the ordinary church. The Lord has promised to use the ordinary church. The church of Jesus is described by God himself in the word of God as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and the temple of God. Other things as well, but we're going to focus on those right now. And these pictures have many things in common, such as union with God, being knit together with him. We have our life by being with him and connected to him, and we're all unified together in him. What those pictures also have in common is the regular, predictable, count on a bowl nature of each one. The sweetness of a regular relationship. Now, part of the beauty of a father and son relationship is the regular nature of it. That's meant to be consistent. Friends change, jobs change, classmates change, many things change. But coming home to mom and dad, if it is a healthy family, you know that they will be there to embrace you and to feed you maybe, to correct you, to care for you, to teach you. So too with a marriage, there's this predictability, this ordinariness of an I love you doesn't take away from the beauty of the relationship. The fact that you can expect and I love you is a beautiful thing, not a bad thing. It is the stuff of wicked men with midlife crises to think that this is somehow not as good. A man who prefers the unpredictability of dating to the settled love of a marriage is no good man at all. And I want you to see that this is also the function of the temple in the Old Testament. It was a tent and mobile to be in the center of Israel while they were mobile, while they were roaming in the and they were wandering in the wilderness where they were not settled in one place, neither was it. And it was actually set up in such a way that wherever they would land, wherever they would camp, they would always know where to find it. It would always be right dead center in the middle of their camp. And so actually its mobility lended to the fact that it was had a permanent place in the center of their community. But then, when Israel took their permanent place in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, when they, they received this, when they inherited it from the land, the temple became a permanent structure, immovable, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This is where they could expect to meet with God, to hear from his word, to see sacrifices for their sins and to enjoy his presence together. Yes, he was always with them. But this predictability of this physical place that God has put together was a gift to them. So numerous times a year, they were to travel to Mount Zion where the Lord would gather his people to offer sacrifices for their sins, which he had promised to accept. He promised to accept these. That was the predictability of this, this lovely gift of predictability based on his promises. He promised to receive these sacrifices should they be offered in faith. And where they delighted in song together. Ordinary, predictable, regular, and beautifully, beautifully so. In John chapter 4, verse 21 to 24, and Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman about the temple. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, he's speaking of the mountain that they set up their worship on, nor in Jerusalem, which is where the Lord had actually set up his temple. In neither of these places will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so the stone and wood temple in Jerusalem is then replaced with Jesus himself, where he becomes the place, the location, the physical location, where you could point on a map where he was, where the sacrifice for sins was being made, and where God came to dwell with his people. That's replaced with Jesus himself. It wasn't replaced with nothing. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven after dying and rising from the dead, after he then ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit. He sent his spirit to indwell his body, which is the church. The church is his body in the place now where he dwells and where he promises to reveal himself where he promises to reveal his promises. It's not replaced with nothing, with a living temple. The church, the bride of Christ, the family of God made with living stones. The Lord is spirit. Yes, he is invisible. Yes, he works invisibly. We see this in John chapter 3, but he has not left us without a physical temple with which he works in. He has now filled the people of God. And as he does, he shapes them into a temple where he ordinarily and powerfully and beautifully promises to work. Because we are not merely spirit. We are designed to know God as persons with bodies and, and souls. This is how God has designed us. And he created us this way and he created, he declared it very good. And though God is everywhere and can be and can do anything that he wants, his church is where he has promised to be found. In a sweet, lovely, reliable, knowable, and predictable way. We already saw that in John 10, didn't we? Or Romans 10, I should say. Salvation comes by faith. And faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And this comes from hearing it from the mouth of someone preaching. And that person themselves is equipped and connected to and sent by the people, the physical people of God. And so then the very famous, very common words in Matthew 18 then begin to make so much sense. Here in Matthew 18, he's describing the church and church's role in a person's life. <laughs> And he ends with the well-known phrase, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So let's read that passage. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to read from verses 15 to 20. We're going to read that phrase in its context. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so God, who is infinite and eternal and omnipresent, for the sake of his beloved people, he has bound himself with his promises. No longer to the temple in Jerusalem, but to the church. That doesn't mean the church controls him, but that means he has promised that this is where he has promised to be found. 
I promise to make my make to make myself known to my people through this human group, says God. This human group who can be seen and heard. Now, why does this matter, Derek? Why are we talking about this? I thought we were talking about assurance of salvation, which God gives to his dear children. Well, it matters. Because God uses earthly things to work assurance in his people's hearts. So that when they are left lacking assurance, when his sheep are trembling and worried and wondering, do they belong to him? Are those promises not just for those who believe, but for me specifically? Perhaps weak of faith or weak in assurance that they know what to do. And where to go to find true assurance, to strengthen up their faith. And that from the Lord. What he has promised to use to grant them. So what do you tell then? A woman who is despairing of assurance. Suffering under a lack of assurance or doubts. Worried that she may not belong to the Lord. Do you simply tell her? Keep hoping for it. Keep praying for it. To seek the Lord on her own, you would not do that. The Lord is much more compassionate than that. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, you'll know that the Lord tells us that we need the body of Christ. We need the other believers. We need the church, the members of it. 1 Corinthians 12, we're just going to read three verses here from 18 to 21. 1 Corinthians 12. This is Paul speaking. But as it is, God has arranged the members, thinking body parts. God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So, Christian. You will wrestle with assurance on your own without a group of Christians shaped into a church. Friend, you will be prone to have false assurance without a church family. You may have false assurance and be unable to actually see that you are in a terrifying position because you do not have the benefit of the Christian shaped into a church that the Lord intends to work through and promises to work through for that purpose. But you also may needlessly be worried about whether you belong to the Lord without a church family. The Lord has promised to work through what the church in history has called the ordinary means of grace. What's the ordinary means of grace? Well, it's this. The things that God ordinarily works through to bring a person to salvation and to delight in that salvation. And by ordinarily, we're thinking of ordinarily, you don't survive if you jump out of a plane without a parachute. Ordinarily. You can't expect to survive a fall from an airplane without a parachute. Could it happen? That's not even a question we should really want to ask. By the ordinary means of grace, we think of the the things that God ordinarily works through to bring a person to salvation and also to delight in that salvation. And it just so happens that searching the scriptures, we find that these ordinary means of grace are also those things which tell us what a church is. They are the marks of a church. What's a church? If this is where God says he's going to work assurance and he's going to expose false assurance uh, assurance, and, and he's going to well up true gospel assurance in his people, we should know what a church is. So all the background of scripture leads us to this particular point here in this sermon. That God has designed the church perfectly to be the place where his love and grace are best known. 
where a Christian can delight in being a Christian, where false assurance is exposed, and he has designed it in such a way that his people would know sweet, blessed assurance in the most ordinary and lovely way. In a way that doesn't depend on excitement and thrills and shocks, but in the most ordinary, lovely way. So then the question of what makes a church a church is actually a very important one, isn't it? The church is what God ordinarily uses, what he certainly uses, and what he promises to use to make disciples, to preach the gospel, and to give his people his gifts. So first of all, we want to be clear that it isn't the church itself that gives these graces to people, but it has pleased God to use the church, to work through the church, to bring these things about. And also the church is actually actually made up of those things, which the Holy Spirit works, his grace in people's hearts. When we're asking what makes the church, we're asking something different than what is a Christian, or what is a group of Christians. Those are important questions too. But if God forms his people, his true church, into local churches, we should know how to be one, how to recognize one. And that brings us to our third point. The Lord uses the preaching of the true gospel. Here, we're beginning to look at what are the marks of an actual church. We've looked at before um, in Sunday school and other things, we've looked at marks of a healthy church. And we, we, we looked at nine from, uh, from great authors, from great, great resources, what makes a healthy church. But now we're not even looking at what makes a healthy church. We're actually looking at what, what makes an actual church, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. And the first thing is the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel. The first thing that makes a group of people a church is the preaching of the true gospel. If you turn to 2 John 9, 9 to 11, uh, 2 John, verse 9 to 11. We can see this together. This is John speaking to a church. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So it's, it's preaching of the actual gospel, which makes a church. If you don't have the gospel, if you're not preaching the actual gospel, you're not a church. It says you do not have God. A church is also a group of people formed into a church to preach the true gospel of Christ. And not a false gospel. A false gospel, actually, we see in this passage, they together agree to reject. Once the church has rejected the gospel, once they've rejected the Bible even as their authority, they have ceased to be a church. Because it is the word of God which actually makes a church a church. The word of God created the heavens and the earth. The word of God, the gospel, creates the church by the word of God, by the gospel of God. The spirit breathes a church into existence in the first mark of an actual church is that this is a group of people who are committed to the preaching of God regularly. This is, remember, part of the ordinary regularness that we commit together to regularly, consistently do this to that ordinary beauty of the preaching of the gospel. That's going to bring us to our third point, which is going to be the second mark of an actual church. Here we're not, again, we're not looking at what is a healthy church or an unhealthy church, because a, a real church can be unhealthy or healthy or somewhere in the middle. And the first, fourth point is this, the, the Lord uses water, wine, and bread. Simply preaching the word or teaching the word, even properly, doesn't make a group of people a church. Is a family sitting down in the evening with dad teaching from scripture at church? What if they do it every day? What if they do it every week? No, that's not. A church, they are something wonderful, but they're not a church. 
Hopefully they are part of a church. But they are not a church, and neither are a group of friends meeting in a coffee shop. It's lovely, but it's not a church. So a church also commits to using the ordinances, or for using another term, sacraments. These are visible signs, physical signs, of the promises of God, of the covenant of God. This is baptism and Lord's Supper. To do these together, we're committed to doing these together. And to consistently do these together. This is part of what makes a church an actual church. That sets it apart. Now now you're no longer acting like a group of Christians or a family, just a family. You're now acting as a church. God gives physical signs. And he does this to attach to his gospel oaths, which he has sworn. For this, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look, first of all, at baptism, a familiar passage to many of you. Matthew chapter 28, and we're just going to read verse 16 to 20. This is after Jesus' ascension, or after Jesus' uh, resurrection, and, and before, of course, his ascension. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the Great Commission, which we read, was given to the church. And the Great Commission is to preach the gospel to all nations and then to baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then to teach all that Christ had commanded the apostles, which is essentially the New Testament, and how to understand the Old Testament as well. That was the commission, to do these things. And as they did did these things, through these things, the Lord Jesus would himself be building the church, building uh, building for himself a temple made out of living stones where he would be known and adored and worshipped because he loved us first. Think of this illustration of planting seeds. Or depending on what kind of seed it is, you know what you're going to predictably find as it is, as it finds its root and it grows up. It's going to look a certain way. So too with the preaching the gospel among the nations, it's going to look a certain way. You're going to see these things happen. It's going to grow up into a group of people who are committed to the word of God, to the preaching of the gospel regularly, and also baptizing one another. It's one of the differences between a church and a group of Christians. A church takes responsibility to baptize. A baby isn't baptized into a family, but a believer is baptized into a church. We'll talk more about how the Lord uses baptism to work assurance in his people's heart. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But we see that baptism is one of those things which, mark, which makes a church a church. A church receives people into the family of God as Christ commanded by baptism. Baptism is like a celebration of birth or even a naming ceremony, right? You're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You aren't saved by your baptism, but God insists that the church make a scene about your new birth. The church publicly and visibly, with a visible, physical, ordinary sign, marks you as one of the children of God, somebody for whom Christ died and rose for. Now we're going to go to the other sign, this ordinary sign that God has given us. And that's the Lord's Supper. And for that, we can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Another very familiar passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read 23 to 34. 23 to 34. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Notice first how Paul describes in verses 33 and 34 when he says, when you come together. He says that twice. But if you look at verses 17 to 20, he uses that same phrase three times. So in that full passage, you have that phrase, when you come together, you have it five times in relation to celebrating the Lord's Supper. Of course, the Lord's Supper was instituted before Jesus died, right before he was betrayed. The Lord commanded his disciples to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then they at his command, pass that command to the churches. It's part of what it means to come together as a church. The church celebrates Lord's Supper and commun- or communion together. And he's promised to meet them in this celebration. Bread and wine. Very simple. Much like water. Also very simple. And God has taken these physical, normal things part of everyday life. And then he is attached to them. He is attached to them to his gospel promises. They're like a wedding ring given to a bride. And now a woman can certainly wear a ring and not be married. And a woman can certainly be married and not wear her wedding ring. But the gift of the wedding ring is a sign, a proof, of the oath that is to remind her of her husband's oath, to strengthen her confidence in the oath of her husband and also to let everybody else know about her husband's oath to her. And so it is with the water of baptism and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. When done with the preaching of the gospel, when on together with the preaching of the gospel, the Lord promises to use them to strengthen our faith and to help us delight in his love for us in Christ Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a church, to be formed by the Spirit of God into a visible, physical, earthly temple which has these faith-strengthening elements, the preaching of the gospel, the gathering together, the baptizing of new believers, and the celebration of the Lord's Supper in ordinary and lovely ways. That brings us to our fifth point, which is this. The Lord uses church discipline. The Lord uses church discipline. That's our fifth point. Now, we read Matthew 18 earlier, talking about the church coming together, to welcome people in the family of God, or to sadly let them know that they can no longer recognize them as part of the family of God. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul instructs the Corinthian church on a specific example. So a man is committing adultery with his stepmother. This man is a member of their church. And so here is Paul's instruction. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to read verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 4-5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice again that phrase. 
when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you're assembled as a church, when the church comes together. Part of being a church means not only that the church preaches the gospel, but that it commits itself to the gospel. Not just that it uses the ordinances or sacraments like baptism and Lord's Supper, but that it commits to using them according to Scripture. It also means that a church takes responsibility for one another's faith. Not just that the organization believes the gospel, but that all who are in the organization, because it is an organization made up of members. It's not like a a husk that is the organization filled with members, but the but the church itself is built of these living stones, and so it commits to making sure all of these stones actually belong to the Lord, that love the gospel and believe it. It's one thing for a church to say we are a Bible church or to list their beliefs about the gospel, and, and that's a very good thing to do. It's a good thing to baptize believers and to celebrate Lord's Supper, but it's not really a church unless it commits to these things. It commits to these things and disciplines itself according to these things. Did you notice the role of the church in that specific example that they were to remove any assurance that they had given to this man by being a member of the church? They would remove any assurance that he belonged to the Lord because they didn't think he should have assurance, so they should no longer treat him as a Christian. Of course, they couldn't make him a Christian or not a Christian, but they were to be part of the Lord's removing of false assurance. And we read in 2 Corinthians that this man was saved that that false assurance was ripped away and it gave way to repentance, realizing the danger he was in. And then the Lord replaced it with repentance and faith, which then led to beautiful, true, and real assurance. And Paul even instructs them, make sure now you treat this man as a believer. Restore him. So the Bible outlines what is the inside of the family of God and even the outside. And church discipline is the way which the church commits to honoring Scripture's design for the church. Who should be assured of grace? And who should not be? So this is part of God's design, what marks a church as an actual church. Not necessarily a healthy church, but a church where God promises to use and to even strengthen the church and make the church more and more healthy. But this is what a church is. This is how he has shaped the church to be that temple, that family, that body, where he promises to use us for his faith-strengthening work. As the Lord saves people through the preaching of the gospel, he shapes them into churches. And though there will be many minor differences and some big differences between them, they will have these things in common. And those are also the things that God has promised to use to create or and or strengthen faith. To preach the gospel so that people might believe it and be saved. To provide assurance of salvation to those Christians who are not sure that Christ is their Savior. And to remove false assurance so that people can realize they're not saved and then turn to Christ and actually be saved. And as I mentioned last week, some teachers have rejected these things as putting God in a box. They've also said that what we need is the Spirit's work apart from these things. That if we rely on these physical, earthly things, earthy things like a gathering of the same people over and over again, or things like water and wine and bread, and the gospel preached by the mouth of a human, that's not as spiritual. That's not as divine. It's not as real. It's not as sure as getting some private word in some special, unexpected way. But that really is a rejection of God's declaration that creation was very good. Only spiritual knowledge received without earthly things like a Bible and a 
human's voice box and a group of humans singing in water and bread and wine. That's a rejection of God's sweet covenant love of the church. Those things don't save us, of course. But they are the things which the Spirit has chosen to work, to, to use to work his invisible, internal saving and assuring work in us. And when Paul speaks of his own coming death and the coming death of believers, he agrees that it would be better to be with the Lord, speaking to the Corinthian church. But he would be with the Lord when he died and apart from the body. And that he would long for the day when the Lord returns and resurrects Paul's body and Paul is united to his body and then with the body to be with the Lord, to enjoy him. Our knowledge and full delight for the love of God is designed to be one which involves our bodies, not rejects our bodies, which uses our senses, our ears to hear the gospel out of the mouth of a preacher and out of the mouths of the songs of the people in our church. Bodies which feel the water of baptism and taste the bread and the wine. Eyes to see the same believers week in and week out and to recognize when somebody's, somebody new is there and rejoice that someone new is hearing the gospel. And also being seen by them and being heard by them and being missed by them when they don't see you and hear your song in the church, when the church gathers. And as for putting God in a box, what people mean by that usually is telling God what he will do. Now, we certainly can't do that, but he can. And it is lovely when he does. He does this by his promises. When he tells us what he will do. And when we fell together with Adam and Eve into sin, God showed up and promised them that he would send a son to Eve to suffer in order to rescue her and her family from evil. And God made for them clothing from animal skins, physically symbolizing what he would do. It was at the cost of an animal's life, but, rest, but promising and then symbolizing that their own covering of their shame of sin would be at the cost of somebody else's life. God made a promise. And while we can't put God in a box where we tell him what to do, we can rejoice when he does, when he makes a promise to us. And so when the time was full, he sent his son who took on flesh, becoming a son of Adam and Eve, a human. And in that physical flesh, he rescued fallen man by obeying the law of God in our place and then taking our sin upon his shoulders on the cross and bearing the wrath of God for our sins while dying a very physical death. And then in his body, he rose from the dead on the third day. He promised them that whoever had faith in him would be covered by his sacrifice. And he promised that this faith would come by the preaching of the gospel from the mouth of another human, not something that had to become mystical, like spoken into our ears in a way that was mystical and miraculous in that sense. No, he promised that that would work, that the preaching of the gospel into the ears of his elect, that the Holy Spirit would use that to call us. He's promised that. This is lovely that God has tied himself to these ordinary things like human speech. And he has said that the place he's promised to work is by churches. It's not saying that it's only going to happen on Sunday mornings when they gather. They will continue to minister to one another outside of the worship service. But that's what marks them as a church, is that they do gather regularly to worship God as a church. And sure, we can learn and study and pray and delight in God on our own. But it won't make sense. It won't be complete, except if it's in the life of a person who's joined him or herself to an actual church. He promises to shape them into churches who gather for the preaching of the word and the sacraments or the ordinances 
and to use this group of people to preach the gospel. And when he does, he will strengthen their faith. He will demonstrate his love to them. There, as a church, they can know his love and presence. Not because we can tell him that he must, but because he's promised to meet us there in a very predictable and ordinary and reliable and sweet way. The Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit to speak the gospel through the church and so create faith so that those who die, who he died for would be saved. Then he's furnished us with all that we need, creating a church and then forming all the members of that one invisible church, the church of all times and places, forming the members of that one invisible church into many lovely Visible, hearable, touchable, ordinary churches. Made of living stones who don't need to be exceptional and amazing in order to expect that the Lord Jesus Christ would visit them, would work through them, And then he fills those churches with his spirit, shaping it by those things which the spirit uses to create faith, to sustain faith, and to work to make that faith sure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have not just redeemed us in our spirits, but Lord, you have also bought a redemption for us of our whole being. And Lord, we are grateful that you could, you can do anything. And you could have said you could be found anywhere, Lord. But Lord, that it is a sweeter answer that you give to us to that question. That you have promised us ordinary places where you can be found. Where you will work to create faith and sustain it and to assure us, to give us the gift of assurance. And Lord, we thank you for the lovely gift of shaping your people into families, into churches, where your spirit works to help us delight in the wonderful gift that Christ purchased with his blood. The gift of no longer being your enemies, but of being your children. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to work that in us. In Jesus' name.